little boy that lives at my house. His name is Benjamin. He's five. He's one of my disciples. I have a few that are living there. And um, the other day I had come home from work and I was um, in the house and I was looking out on the backyard through our um, window where hopefully a deck will be one day. And he was playing with a bunch of the neighborhood boys and girls. And as I was just watching him, there was just, you know, this sense of, of pride and, and joy that you get in seeing your children as they interact with other people. And Benjamin and I have been talking a lot about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means, even at five years old, to, to go out and to share your faith with people. And later on that evening, Benjamin came in and I was in a conversation with Heather. And so I wasn't paying attention to him at first. And so he comes up to me and he's like pulling on my shirt. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And so finally I'm like, Benjamin, what, man? What? I'm trying to talk to mom. And he looks up with, at me in those big blue eyes and he's like, Daddy, I shared Jesus with, my, with Colin, or one of our neighbor boys down the street, for the first time today, Daddy. And I cannot tell you as a father like what that means when you're just like, oh my goodness, to see God already working through your son at five years old. And later on as I reflected about that, the reason I share that with you right now is this, because I long for the joy tonight that my son had in the first time that he ever shared his faith with someone. I long for that joy tonight. And so I pray that that tonight, as I preach the Word, that God would inspire me in that, even though God's blessed me with many opportunities to do this before, I pray it would be like my first. I pray for you tonight that this would be like the first time that the Word of God was spoken to you and that there would be a sense of joy and an overwhelming sense of God's majesty as you receive it and as we get to worship together tonight. Speaking of discipleship, over the course of the last two weeks, and even through the whole book of Luke, he takes a huge focus on discipleship. And Mark has been preaching the last two weeks about the sending of the 72. In the next three weeks, this is where we're going to be going. We've got a slide up. I want, I want to, to get this to you guys so you can have an understanding of where we're going. Tonight, we're going to be talking about how we relate to our neighbors as disciples. Next week, we're going to be talking about how we relate to Jesus as we talk about Mary and Martha and how they related to Jesus. And then the following week, we're going to be talking about how we relate to God through prayer. So there's some huge stuff that's coming. We've been talking about what it means to be a disciple. Now we're going to be talking about what it looks like to live the life of a disciple. And so please, please, please try to be here for the next three weeks. As I get started, guys, let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, I pray right now that you would give us that innate sense of joy as we hear your word, Father, and as your word is preached. God, I pray that we would receive it. Father, I pray that it would bring us to our knees in humility as we recognize that we cannot know you unless it was with the faith that you have given us to trust in your grace and to love you wholly and completely and to love others as you have loved us, God. I pray right now that you would draw us to yourself and I pray that you would help us to worship you through the word, through the music, Father, and through prayer. It's in your holy and mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's begin. Luke um, chapter 10 is where we are at. And uh, we are going to be starting here in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We're going to be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan tonight, a story that many of you have probably heard preached over and over. And as many times as this story has been preached, it has been misunderstood and miscommunicated a ton. The first part of my message, I'm going to be introducing a whole bunch of foundational stuff. So for you, for you that are like detail and history people, you'll probably connect pretty well. Then I'm going to go into a segment that's going to be the story. Um, for those of you that, that love to see visuals and, and really connect to that, that part may connect to you better, but I want to challenge you to stay connected to both pieces of the message tonight because both pieces are equally important as we talk about the theology and as we talk about the story. So let's start there in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, because most of you are probably using the NIV with me, you'll see there in the very beginning of verse 25, it says, on one occasion, 
Now, the right translation that we would see there, it's it's written in the, the ESV. It says, and behold, as Luke begins this segment of Scripture, what he is saying is, look. He's saying, pay attention. There's something important that I want to say. And this goes back to something that we saw in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. If you look there with me from a piece of Scripture that we read last week, at the time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you have revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. And so what's happening now is Luke, as he is writing this letter to Theophilus, he is continuing on in what Jesus has said. Because Jesus says, These things, these things about God, these things that are spiritual have been hidden from many wise people and they have been given, they have been given to the last. They have been given to the children so that the wise would not understand. And now Jesus is going to tell us here um, in a story, an interaction that Luke records about a man that is very, very wise but does not understand the deeper truths of Jesus. And so this is, this is where we find ourselves. This word here, expert in the law, is a man that is well versed. He knows well the laws of Moses. And so we're going to refer to him as from, from this point on in the story as a lawyer because that's what Luke is referring to him as. So this man is a lawyer. He knows a ton about the law and he's going to come into a very interesting interaction with Jesus. Um, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he is doing here is he is testing Jesus. Now, as he asked this question, please understand that this is not a friendly question. But he, right off the bat here, is going to try to trap Jesus in saying some things that he is hoping will blow up um, the validity of who Jesus is. Now, this can be proven if we go back into the Greek. The word test here is ekparazo. Now, this word, ekparazo, finds itself in another part of Luke, in Luke chapter 4. And I think we'll have this passage on the screen. Um, actually, we'll just do it from here. Luke chapter 4, verse 12. This is when Jesus is being tempted, and Jesus is speaking to the deceiver, and he says, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the what? To the test. Ekparazo. And so this man is coming to Jesus, not trying to engage in a friendly conversation, but he's coming to him saying, Jesus, I want to prove something to you. Jesus, I want to test you. Jesus, I want to overcome you by my knowledge in comparison to yours. And so the question that he asked, this is what he says. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't come to Jesus asking, God, what must I do to serve you? What must I do to glorify you? But he automatically turns the question to being about himself, saying, Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? Now, if you want to kind of try to understand um, maybe a little bit of what is happening here, imagine one of your parents getting very ill, and you go to your parent, and there's two different things that you can say. You can go to them and you can say, I want to be here and I want to take care of you in your years as you're aging. I want to serve you. Or you can go to your parent and you could say, I want to come and take care of you because I know that you have an inheritance coming for me. Right? There's two different ways to say it. <laughs> and what he is saying here is, I'm concerned with you, Jesus, because I want to know what I need to do to receive my eternal life. There's a different interaction that happens um, in a different place in Scripture where a similar question is asked. And um, it's in Luke. Um, I'm trying to find my place here. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 12, we see uh, in an interaction that John has with his disciples, or John has with the crowd, that they come to him and they want to know. And the, the question is, is asked, John, what do we do? Not what do we do to receive eternal life, but what do we do to know God? So let's keep going here. Jesus says in verse 26, 
What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And so in Jesus' response, he says a few things that are pretty profound here. What Jesus is doing, as any good teacher would do, and if, if any of you have known a very good teacher, I'm certain that you have seen them do this before. Jesus is attempting here to trap this man with a question. Okay, the man may have been perceiving at the moment that he asked the question that Jesus would say, because this is the message that he's been giving, that you must believe in me, and if you believe in me, that you will receive eternal life. But Jesus knows that this man is an expert in the law, so he turns the question to the law, and he says, what does the law say? Now you have to understand that all of Jesus' traps in life are all traps of love. Many of you have found yourself in a trap of, in life before. You found yourself coming to Jesus asking questions, what should I do? In all of Jesus' traps, just like any good teacher, what he is trying to lead you to is the response or to the answer that you need to be able to glorify him. As I was thinking about this, I thought of a story of an interaction that I had with my grandfather once. I decided that I was going to take on this project in my basement of finishing a room. Now, for most of you that know me know that that's not a very good idea for me to take on by myself, right? Well, I called my grandfather and I, I had my grandfather come over and I said, Grandpa, I need you to help me. I know that he's, he's getting older and so he couldn't do a lot of the work, but he had all of the knowledge to be able to help me. So he comes over and he begins to give me all the answers that I need to be able to finish this room. But what winds up happening is he ends up doing a lot of the work and I'm just there helping him. Well, it comes to the day that we're going to be doing the drywall and I have all the supplies there and we're ready to go. And something very interesting happened. My grandpa calls me and he says, you know what, I I can't come today. And so here I am left with all this drywall and this mud and this tape. And for those of you that have drywalled before, you know that it is like not an easy thing to do, especially if it's your first time. And what he was doing is he was saying, you know what, I'm not going to show up. You're going to have to figure it out for yourself. You've been asking me questions all the time. Now here's the opportunity for you to search it out and figure it out. Now if you think about this in your mind, when you have to be the one that goes and searches down the answer, and when you're the one that has to come up with the solution, what generally happens? You end up knowing the answer way better than you would have known it if somebody went out and did the work for you. And so a good teacher always asks the question that will bring his students to the right response because he wants him to answer that question So look there in verse 27. This is the man's answer. He says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the man here gives a two-part response to Jesus Now I want you to turn with me in your scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And we're going to see where the first part of his response to Jesus comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. There was, um, what this is, is it's called the Shema. And this is part of the Shema. And what the Shema is, it's something that Jews would recite twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. And so he gives this answer from the Shema. And in it it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. In the Synoptic Gospel, something else is added later, the word mind. And so what he is saying is that you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, so all of your emotions. You must love the Lord with all of your soul, and so all of your, all, every part of you, 
Okay? You must love Him with all of your strength. So all of your motivation must be given to loving the Lord. And then later on, the, the word mind is added. Like I said in the Synoptic Gospels, so you must love the Lord your God with all of your intelligence. And so get this, every piece of you, in order to love God, your mind, your strength, your heart, your emotions, everything must be given over to God in loving Him. That's what he says. That's the first part. The second part that he says is this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The twofold answer. These two things together are referred to as the great commandment. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, turn with me again there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus. Chapter 18, verse 19. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Backwards. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek refuge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, like I shared a minute ago, as these two passage comes, passages just come together, they make up what is known as the great commandment. There's a reason that this is the great commandment. And I want to try to explain this to you. If there's nothing that maybe you walk away from with today, I hope that it would be this, that you get an understanding of why these two passages work together and that they are so, so, so important. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, we have something that's known as the Ten Commandments. And these were the laws that God gave to Moses so that he could lead the people of Israel. And in these commandments, we have these commandments, and I want to work through a few of these with you real quickly. The first four commandments are all dealing with God. You shall have no other gods before me. Look down to number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You should take a Sabbath day and you should keep it holy. The first four commandments all have to do with what? with loving God. Now, the, the next six commandments all have to do with something different. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. The last six commandments all have to do with loving your neighbor. And so an expert of the law would know that I can sum up everything that God has called us to do by saying, loving God, loving people. That's, that's where it's at. Loving God and loving people. And look what Jesus says to him in response. Jesus says there in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will Live Now, automatically, for many of you in the room right now, you're beginning to struggle with this. Because what it seems like is being said is Jesus is saying, you know what? You're right. All you have to do is follow the Ten Commandments and you'll receive eternal life. Now, from all the passages in the New Testament that we continue to read, we read passages like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever what? That whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life. That doesn't say anything about the Ten Commandments. That doesn't say anything about the law. Where is this coming from? We have other passages like Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. All that has to do is this belief. So what does following the Ten Commandments have to do with God giving me faith in me believing with Him? This was one of the greatest parts of the Scripture that I wrestled with this week. I thought that, you know what, this, this passage is going to be so easy because I'll just be able to go into the story and I'll be able to tell the story and I'll be able to use some cool objects and everybody is really going to connect and we're all going to want to go out and love people. We have got to get the reality of what this passage is saying. It is so key and it is so important. If you think that what is being said here is that you need to follow a bunch of laws, you're dead wrong. 
There is no separation of how you receive eternal life in the Old Testament and how you receive eternal life in the New Testament. They are both by grace, if you've got a pen and write this down, they are both by grace through faith that works in love. By grace through faith that works in love. So you may be asking what that means right now. Here's the deal. Let me, make it, let me try to make it really simple for you. You cannot love God and love people apart from faith. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, and the expert of the law summarizes all the Ten Commandments by saying, love God and love people, and you'll get it right. Jesus says yes, and Jesus is still being true to who He is. Because He's saying, if you have faith, you will love God, and you will love people. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Andrew, put this slide up. Galatians 5, verse 6. For if Christ Jesus neither for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love do you get that faith always expresses itself in love so without faith it will be impossible for you to love God But here's the big kicker too. Without faith, it will be impossible for you to love people. Did you hear that? Let me say that again for you. Without faith, it will be impossible for you to love people. And one of the greatest evidences of a believer, of a follower of Jesus Christ, is that they have what? Love. They have love. So then, in verse 29, the dialogue continues. And it gets better. It says, But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, he asked Jesus this question, he says, Who is my neighbor? Again, sounding like an innocent question, but Luke has given us a heads up by saying, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to make himself look good. And the reason that he asked, who is my neighbor, is because this is what he wants to figure out. How can I narrow my search result here of identifying who my neighbor is? Because this is the deal. Once he can figure out who his neighbor is, there's a whole big group of people that he no longer has to love. He doesn't want to love those people. It's giving him a way out. By selectively eliminating that group of people, he no longer has to think for himself. He no longer has to rely on God. He can now be doing the minimum and still be a religious person and say that he's trying to follow God completely. Many of us have tried to do this before. We want to identify a group of people and say, well, this is the group of people that I'm going to really try to focus on and this is the group of people I'm going to love. And now that I'm doing this over here, I no longer have to worry about this set of neighbors because this is all I've got time. This is all I want to do. So this is going to be my only focus. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, nope, it's not that easy. And he's going to prove it here in the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, for those of you that like stories, here we go. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. And so there's a man that is going down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And so any way that you would have been leaving Jerusalem, you would have been going down. Jericho is 17 miles away from Jerusalem. And on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho, the path is absolutely treacherous. This is one of the worst roads that anybody could ever be on and, and walk. And there would be robbers that would hide themselves in caves 
all along the road. And so as Jesus begins to tell these stories, this story, the lawyer automatically connects with him and he automatically knows what he's talking about because he knows that road and he knows how dangerous it is and how bad it is. And in this story, we're not sure if the man that is going to be beaten here is a Jew. We don't know if he's a Gentile. That point really doesn't matter. He's a man. He's somebody that God has created. And on this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, there are some robbers that attack this man. Scripture says that they strip him of his clothes. Now being stripped of your clothes in this culture would have been the most humiliating thing that a person could have done to a man. I'm pretty sure in our culture it'd be pretty humiliating too, wouldn't you agree? And so he's stripped of his clothes, he's robbed of the possessions that he has. We don't know what the possessions are, and he is beaten to the point where he is left for dead. Okay. So what's going to happen next? Is there going to be help for this man? Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so we have a priest. We have a Levi. It sounds like the beginning to a really bad joke. The priest comes along, all right? He's walking down the road. This priest would have been from the line of Aaron. Right? This priest would have been a person in the temple that would have been involved in sacrifices. He would have been a person that would have um, tried to, to help keep order in the temple. And as he comes by, this Samaritan man, not only does he walk past him, but he goes to the complete opposite side of the road. Now there's a ton of different ideas here. Um, There's a ton of different people that have tried to explain away the reason that this priest does this. Some people say that he has to go around because he would be ceremonially unclean if he touched a man like this who is near death. Other people say, no, the reason that the priest had to go around him, that he couldn't even go and help the Samaritan, um, that he couldn't go and help the man that was beaten on the side of the road, is because he had his possessions with him and he himself was worried about being robbed along with the man. And so he goes around him. This is what we can say from these speculations. All we know is that Jesus here is talking about a fictional character and so it really doesn't matter in his heart the reason that he doesn't stop and the reason that he doesn't help. You guys get that? It doesn't really matter. The point is that there is a man that is in need and this priest completely overts coming and helping him and he walks around to the other side of the road. Let's keep going here. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side of the road. A Levite would have been like an assistant to the priest. He would have been from the line of Levi, hence Levite. And again, he would have had many responsibilities similar to that of the priest in the temple. And so we can make some of the same speculations. Maybe it's because he didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. Maybe it was because he had some possessions. Again, it doesn't matter. Two different guys that we can look at and we can say, hey, these guys were wise. These guys were religious. Yet for some reason, both of them walk to the other side of the road. But then, check this out. This is the point in Scripture. This is what Timothy Keller says, where Jesus is hanging out here in this conversation, and all of a sudden, it's like he reaches down into his pocket, and he pulls out like this grenade, and he bites out the pen, and he just like hurls it into the middle of the conversation. Because this is the point where things get controversial. This is the point where Jesus is absolutely going to blow up the mind of the lawyer. Look who Jesus introduces here to the story. 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him 
to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for extra expenses that you might have. And what I've done here, because I want you to understand the profound nature of this Samaritan's love, is I have put some action words that Jesus used to describe what this man does. Andrew, if you could throw up that slide. The Samaritan sees him on the side of the road. Now the Samaritan just as easily could have walked around to the other side and said, you know what, I just don't have time to deal with that today. That guy is naked, he's all beaten up, he doesn't have any money to give me if I help him, and so I'm just going to roll on. But he sees him and the Samaritan takes pity on him. There is something that is happening inside of the heart of the Samaritan. There is some compassion going on that causes him to grieve for the man that's been beaten and for the man that's hurting. So he goes to him. He goes to the side of the road that the man has been beaten on. He bandages him. And we, I mean, I, I think that we can assume that the guy's not, probably not carrying like a first aid kit, right? And so he probably takes some of his clothes, he rips them apart, and he bandages up the man that's been beaten. He pours oil and he pours wine on his wounds that are going to become like a disinfectant. He takes the man and he puts the man on his donkey. He takes him to the inn and he takes care of him once they arrive here. Now, I don't know about you, but like if any of those excuses would have worked for the other two guys, if the excuses would have worked for the priest and the Levite that, you know, they had to, to not be ceremonially unclean or, or that they have some things in their possession that they don't want to lose in case they were to get robbed too, I would say that the Samaritan probably has a lot more to worry about. He arrives, and we know from reading on in Scripture that he has two denarii at least that are in his possession. So he's got two days' wages that he is carrying on his journey. We also see that he's got oil and he's got wine, commodities that any robber would have loved to steal. He has different things that that people are going to want if they see him. And yet he takes no regard and he says, you know what, I see a man that's hurting and I am going to restock and I am going to respond in love. The reason that this whole thing is so controversial is because a Jew looked at a Samaritan in a way that we cannot even understand because we are so culturally detached. But what a Samaritan was, if you go back in your Bibles and you read 1 Kings and you read 2 Kings, Samaritans at one time were a part of Israel, but they broke off and they formed their own nation as a rebel group. And once they broke off, they began to intermarry with people that worshipped pagan gods. And so not only were Samaritans rebels, but they were half-breeds. And Jews looked at them and they said, you're not like us. You were, but now you're not. You worship other gods. You've intermarried with other people. We don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm certain that there are people in your life, even today, ethnic groups of people, different religious groups of people, and you look at them as if they were a Samaritan, just like the Samaritan. I think that for us in this room right now, one of the best things that we could probably do is connect ourselves with the robber that is on the side of the road. And in order for you to be able to kind of get um, a, a, a cultural representation, possibly, of what's happening here, I wasn't sure if I was going to try to do this or not. I think I want to do this because I, I think that it will be important. I want you to recognize here that in the story that Jesus tells, that he, as he tells the story, is crossing into all types of controversial issues as he tries to get the people to understand the chasm between a Samaritan and between a Jew and what's actually happening. And so I want you to consider this. You have just gone with your family to 
a baseball game. Okay, let's say that you've gone and you've watched the Cardinals play. The Cardinals were playing the Cubs, and obviously the Cardinals have won. Okay, so you have a lot of reason to celebrate. You're really happy, and you're leaving the game. And as you're leaving the game, and you're walking down the street, you are attacked, and you are beaten. These guys that rob you, they take away all of your clothes. They take away all of your possessions. You are left with nothing. You're left for dead. And then, all of a sudden, as you're laying there on the ground, as you're looking up, as you're gasping for help, you see a few different people walk by. The first person that walks by you as you're there beaten, hoping that someone is going to help you is a guy that, that kind of has spiky hair, kind of like mine. He's wearing a, a cool shirt like mine. And he's got on jeans like these. And he looks a lot like me. He's, he's a church planner, okay? And he walks by you. And as he sees you there on the side of the road, he thinks in his mind, like, the right thing for me to do is help. But he thinks, you know what, like it's Saturday and I've got church tomorrow. There's so many different things on my mind. There's so many different people that I have in my life that I need to help. I mean, I need to think about church. I don't need to be thinking, because if I help this guy, it's going to take me a long time. I'm going to be tired. It's going to be a distraction. I've got other things that I need to worry about. So what he does, what I do, is walk right by. Then another man comes up, all right, and let's... Let's just say that this person is a, a professor. Anybody have any glasses? Can I borrow your glasses, Matt? He's a professor. Okay, I need to look like a professor now. I told you this is just random here. And the, the professor is walking down the road. I'm going to get really dizzy. The professor is walking down the road, and he sees you there. You've been beaten. You don't have anything. He... As he sees you there, he thinks in his mind, you know what, I probably need to help. But if I stop and if I help, what if somebody was to rob me? What if somebody, because he was just recently paid and he's got his money in his pocket, and the only thing that this professor can think about is what if somebody now takes advantage of me Two. By the way, the professor was a deacon in the church, somebody that is helping to serve the pastor. And he walks right on by. Now, as you see these first two people walk by, in your mind, you have to be thinking, and you know this. You were thinking all along that those two guys, they are going to stop and help me. You can barely see him. You can barely make him out. But you've got to think that the two guys that look like you, that think like you, that care about the God that you care about, that they're going to be the guys that stop and help you. But they walk right on by with no regard to you and to your current situation. Then, <laughs> then, there's a third person that's coming. And they're not walking, but they're actually driving in a car. And it is a big, fat, 60-foe Impala with like 22-inch rims. And it's coming down the road. And I'm going I'm to have to have some help for this one. I need, can I borrow your hat? Okay. I got my hat. Can I borrow that too? Sweet. <laughs> I got a jacket. This might take me a second to put on here. But this is... This is going to be helpful. So, and you know, before, before you even see this car, like, you can like hear it coming. It's like, and, and like, he's like, the guy's coming down the road and you're like, you can not only hear the music, but, it, but the guy's hitting switches, you know? So it's like, you know? And so he's coming, he's coming down the road and He's got the 22-inch rims. He's in the 6 fall Impala. And the guy gets out of the car, and, and you're white, okay? You're white. And, and again, please understand here, I am not being racial at all. I love black people. I love white people. I'm making fun of white people way more than I am of any, any other race, okay? 
the guy gets out of the car and you in your white suburbia mind are like, oh no, I'm about to get shot. All right. You're thinking that you're going down because this guy gets out and he is not like you. He's not the same color. When he smiles at you, all you can see is his grill, you know, because his teeth are gleaming. And, and like you are at a point because you're on the side of the road dying that you think all this guy is going to do is he is going to come and hurt me. He's going to come and take anything that I have left. This is the guy. The guy that most of white suburbia St. Charles is for some reason afraid of because we don't understand and because culturally we are afraid. This is the guy that bends down to you on the side of the road and he helps you up. He takes you back to his crib, all right? He gives you the things that you need and he takes care of you for weeks. It was the absolute last guy that you would have expected. I'm going to have to take this hat off. You guys won't take me seriously anymore. So let's finish up this story and let's see now how this whole deal plays out. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Robbers, this is absolutely beautiful. Jesus, it's like as if he was God or something, and like he can ask the best question ever. Jesus asked the question, I've got to read this to you again. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Do you see that Jesus has completely turned the whole thing onto this guy's head? Because in his question, he's not saying, which person in the story is your neighbor? He's saying, which one acted like a neighbor? See, Jesus' point isn't, who should we try to figure out that we need to serve? No, his point is, we need to learn how to love people right. We've got to learn how to love people right. And the Samaritan is the embodiment of what love is supposed to look like. Verse 37 the expert in the law replied, he knows he's trapped. He has no other choice but to answer the question. And Jesus knows it. And it's going to be amazing. He says, the one who had mercy on him. Now, what's so funny about this is he cannot even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. <laughs> All right? He cannot even bring himself to say the word. And so he says, it was that one who had mercy on him. You know, for a Jew, saying it was the good Samaritan, like the, the story is titled, that would be like saying it was the good communist, right? Like good and communist, like somehow they don't fit together. So he can't even say that. And so in Jesus' response, he says, you go and do likewise. You go and you live like that Samaritan lived. You go and you love like that Samaritan loved. Who's your neighbor? It's everybody that you pass along the path. Who's your neighbor? It's everybody that you come into contact that has a need. Who is your neighbor? It's everyone. Stop worrying so much about who your neighbor is. Stop worrying so much about who you should serve and who you shouldn't serve. When a need comes into contact with you, be a good neighbor. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, and and I want us to read one more passage of Scripture. He's saying exactly what he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 31 to 36. Andrew, do we have a slide for that one? Luke chapter 6, verse 31 to 36, if you have your words and you want to turn there too. This is what Jesus is saying. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that And if you lend to those to whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting 
to be repaid in full. What it means to be a good neighbor is to love people unconditionally in the midst of their need. Okay, so a few things that I want to put out here for you guys as we close up the message. I think that that many of us could be asking the question now, so we've identified that all people that we come into contact with that have a need, that as a good neighbor, that we should seek to, to love them, that we should seek to meet that need. And so, I'm getting hot. I'm sorry, guys. So for many of you now, you're asking the question, okay, so as I came to church today, I passed, I was going on Highway 70, like I always do, and I got off at Highway 94, and there was that person there that I see there all the time, and they had the can, and they were begging for money. Does that mean that I'm supposed to give that person some money? Or it's the person that you came into contact with at the convenience store. It was the woman who came to you and said, I just lost my house. I don't have a place to live. Can you help put me up somewhere for a week? And you're asking these questions. Okay, so if I'm coming into contact with these people, how do I love them the right way? Because I'm loving God and I'm loving people. Here's three things that I want you to think about as you go. Three things to remember as you seek to love your neighbor. First one, number one, allow yourself to be led by a heart of compassion. There's some people in this room right now straight up that you struggle to love people. You struggle to even look at the guy that is on the side of the road the road, holding that sign. You struggle to even imagine giving that guy some money because in your mind you're thinking everybody should be just like me. If you are that person, if you are struggling so much to love people, I would challenge you to ask the question, do you understand what it is to receive mercy? Because until you have received mercy and understand that God loved you first, it will be impossible for you to love people the right way. You must act out of a heart of compassion. Allow a compassionate heart to lead you. Here's the second thing. Open up your eyes. (laughs) Open up your eyes. Once you allow your compassionate heart to lead you, it is going to open up your eyes to a world of ways where you can love people. Quick story. At the beginning of my lot family on Sunday, there was a bunch of guys that were playing bocce ball and I saw my neighbor starting in to carry in two by fours around to his basement one by one. My neighbor had had a horrible accident at work a few years before and his back has been completely broken and destroyed and so he has to wear a brace any time that he is picking up anything and he could only carry one two by four at a time. We're standing there playing bocce ball, 11 guys that are all in their 20s and 30s, very well body. I mean, we can go and we can help this guy and we can get it done. Now, if we had not seen the need, if we had not opened up our eyes to recognize that there are needs all around us, we would have never crossed the road to go and help. There are needs all around you. Open your eyes. Begin to see the needs that exist in your community, with your neighbors, at this church, all around us. Here's the last thing. Open up your ears. It's one thing to see a need. It's another thing to really begin to allow that need to filter through your ears so that you can discern what the need really is. You will have people that will tell you that they have a need and if you listen closely, you might be able to recognize that the need that they are saying that they have is not necessarily the need that they have. Are you guys tracking with me? Here's the deal. Think about this. About two months ago, we had a woman that came to us at the end of a worship service on a Wednesday night, and she said that I need to be put up into a hotel for a week. I was hanging out with some of my friends. I heard you guys put people up for a week at a time. You know, I've been trying to find a job. I just can't find one. This is my 20-year-old daughter. This is my other friend. She was in her mid-30s. We would all like to stay in the hotel. My question is, when is the last time that you have had a job? It's been many, many years When is the last time that you had a permanent place to stay? It's been a long, long time. That person had gotten into a place that they were in a cycle and they were going to continue in that cycle until somehow it was broken. And so by using ears, I discerned that, you know what, for us to put you up in a hotel for a week is probably the worst thing that we can do. But what we will do is we'll meet with you tomorrow, we'll spend an hour with you, two hours with you, and we'll try to figure out how you can get off of this cycle. That, in that moment, was the best way to love. But you first have to open your ears and understand what people need. Here's another example. A week ago, 
we had a woman that came to the Matthias office. We actually found out about her because the St. Charles City Police called us, which is pretty cool that we've got police now calling our church when they find somebody that has a need. That's a blessing. And they said, we found a woman that is living in a car. She's living in a car with her five-year-old and her 15-year-old. They have no place to stay. They just moved up here from Springfield. They sold their, their house. Actually, their house was taken away. They were trying to get into a house up here. Some things have worked, not worked out, and it looks like it's going to be at least another two weeks before we can try to get them into some type of housing. So as we met with this lady and as we began to hear her story, she shared with us some things that were amazing. But one of the big things that she shared with us is that I've just recently gone to um, a pizza place and I've started to work there. I'm only making minimum wage, but I'm doing the best that I can to try to help my kids. And in that moment, we recognized one of the very best things that we could do to help this lady is to put her up in a hotel for a week. You have to begin to listen and discern what do people really need. But again, the greatest thing that we have to do as a church is recognize that if we are not acting out of the mercy that God has given us, if we have not recognized that we are indeed the robber or that we are indeed the person that has been beaten on the side of the road and Christ has lent down and He has offered up His hand to us, that we will never ever be able to show compassion to people in the right way. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. God, I pray that tonight Father, that your word has spoken. God, it has not been me, that it has been you. And God, I pray that as, as we talked about earlier, like little children, that we would receive what it is that you have given us tonight, God. And I pray that you would help us to love you and to love people in the right way. In your holy name, amen.